0: This episode of The Minimalists is brought to you by Nobody, because advertisements suck.
1: The Minimalists.
2: (laughs) Every little thing
1: you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it
0: Welcome to The Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus, and together we are The Minimalists. Today, we're here with author and environmental lawyer Robert F. Kennedy Jr., whose new podcast can be found at anchor.fm slash Jr. or wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Robert, thank you for joining us today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. First of all, let me explain my voice, because your audience may not be used to hearing me. I have, I used to have a very strong voice until I was 42 years old, and then I got a disease called spasmodic dystonia. It makes my voice tremble like this, and particularly when I first start talking, it trembles, usually it gets better, or people get used to it as I talk, so I just kind of want to get that out of the way so people you know, aren't wondering about it. I thought we would
0: start
3: by answering some questions here. Our first one is from Jessica. What is our biggest environmental problem? Deforestation, air pollution, global warming, water pollution, natural resource depletion. Is it too late to fix it? It's an expansive question, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, yeah, to sum it up, what's our biggest environmental problem, and is it too late to fix it? I guess it depends it? what
2: you care about of you. you know, to me, the thing that... I think is most disturbing is the um, the extinction of species. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And you know that even when I was a kid, I I was and I heard about the Dodo bird. I was like, you know, just very disturbed about that. And felt like I, you know, almost a sense of betrayal. Like, how could people let a species go extinct? Yeah. And you know, having this sense of that we don't we don't really have the it's morally wrong to, to destroy something that you cannot create or that you cannot recreate, and um, you know now we're in the middle because of, um, you know, because of human uh, factors. We are now in the middle of the biggest mass extinction in history. Yeah, uh, the climate change is part of that, mm-hmm. and uh, and population is a factor too. But mm. you know those things. Um, in some case, well, and you asked the, the question is, can we reverse it? Um, we can do our best to mitigate it, right? But at this point, you know, our children are not going to have the same opportunities, no matter what we do at this point, for dignity and enrichment and good health as, as we had, yeah. Mm. And that, mm. you know, is a tragic, and it's a moral issue. Yeah. yeah. And the question is, you know, what can we do? It's really a, you know, we're involved in a in a war, and it's a war against mainly, you know, most of these problems are the cause of of large corporations who are politically powerful, who are, you know, who are enmeshed, invested in this. Um, in consumerism and in bad behavior. Right. Who are not looking out for humanity but because of the nature of our laws where they're incentivized to um, to make decisions that enrich themselves by impoverishing the rest of us. Right. It's at the
0: detriment of other people. Yeah. It's, it's incredibly selfish. You're Ryan and I certainly aren't against consumption. Uh, we all consume some stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And people often mistake us for ascetics or some sort of monks or something like that. No, we, we try to live well within society. And I think part of that has to do with being intentional, but also being intentional about not harming other people, which actually leads me to a question that Izzy has here. Uh, Izzy says, at what point is it dangerous to keep saying there are no shoulds? So Ryan and I often talk about, you know, there are no shoulds. What we really mean by that is we often overly moralize everything. You know, we'll tell people you shouldn't eat carbs after 3 p.m. or something. You, you, you see it on commercials and podcasts and and you sort of these Internet experts telling us we should do this. You shouldn't do that. You should do this. And most of them are just opinions there. You could do this or you you don't have to do this or whatever. Mm-hmm. But of course, there is morality in life and there are some shoulds. You, Ryan, you should not kidnap my daughter. I
3: should not. That is correct. Um, well, is, I mean, could you even take it? I don't know. So you're saying there are some shoulds because I'm saying you could rephrase that and say something like, um, "Ryan, I prefer you not to kidnap my daughter uh-huh. because that would really hurt our family and that it really seems immoral. I prefer you not do that." But I guess that should that, that still is kind of a should.
0: Yeah, I mean when we're talking, I mean this is all it gets complicated with language. Yeah. We talk about things as good or bad, should or shouldn't. That we often overly moralize things. I, I want to avoid becoming you know, fully nihilistic and just saying, well, you, nothing matters at all. There is no moral good or bad. That's not what we're talking about here. To
3: continue Izzy's question, you want to read the rest of it, Ryan? Sure, it says, uh, I get caught up in trying to fight for environmental justice, but worry I'm crossing the line. I don't want to tell anyone how to live their life, but I'm unwilling to let go of my attachment to caring for the earth, so I have, a sh- so I have strong opinions about what people shouldn't do. Environmentalism is an idea that I cannot back down from, compromise on, or see from both sides. I think this is a problem, too, when we're not willing to even look at the
0: other side. And Bobby, it seems to me that what you do well is um, you are able to see both sides and even consider even the side of the corporation, if someone's being immoral, you're able to even see it from their point of view and you can quickly cast judgment on that person or, or entity. But can we talk a little bit about this? Because well, it is a moral
2: I, quandary. You know, I try to stay away from telling people how they should live their lives. Mm-hmm. And I really, I, I hope I don't do that. Yeah. You know, and that's not, um, I think I believe in personal liberties and that people should make their own choices. and. Mm-hmm. I don't think the big driver of environmental destruction is you, you can change you with individual choices. And I was on a board for many years with the, the CEO of Rockner & Gamble, mm-hmm. and he showed me data. They have data going back, consumer data going back about oh, more than a century. Mm. And what he showed me is that people um, will – there's a steady n- number of people who will change their purchasing behavior because of moral appeals. In other words, sure. you know, if you do this, if you buy this, it's better for society, and it never gets more than 8% of the public, <laughs> yeah. ever. Um, you can change people's behavior by saying it's good for your health. Oh, so it's an individually good for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but people are gonna buy essentially the cheapest thing. Mm-hmm. Most of the people, to me, what you guys do is really, and I've seen your you know, your video, and I think it's really important, but it's more important for, um, it's more important because it's important, as I said, for, for us as individuals, mm-hmm. for our peace of mind that we live moral lives and that we live connected lives and that we live have, um, mindfully, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, but, you know, I remember my, a lot of my attitudes are came out of it in the 1960s. It was an advertisement on TV. It was the biggest PSA ever in history. And it showed somebody throwing some garbage out of the window of a car. Yes. And there was an Indian standing on the road who was crying. Yeah, the it was deer. a tear, uh-huh. right? Yeah. And that, it got $500 million of free PSA time. Wow. It was made by a group called Keep America Beautiful. right? Mm. And people thought that was an environmental group, but it wasn't. It was a coalition of glass bottle manufacturers and aluminum can manufacturers Mm. whose principal objective was to fight bottle bills from being passed in the 50 states. Wow. It was trying to tell American consumers the reason we have garbage is because you guys are slobs. Uh, It's not because the corporations aren't paying for litter disposal. Right. And in the United States, the the highest altitude landmark on the East Coast of North America is the Fresh Kills landfill. Okay. And the reason – and they don't have landfills like that in Europe. Why? Because in Europe, garbage disposal is not paid for by the taxpayer. In our country, garbage disposal is subsidized by the taxpayer, mm-hmm. and so Amazon will send you a credit card in a shoebox. Right. Because <laughs> it can blast the outside of that shoebox with advertising, so yeah. it becomes an advertising vehicle for them, and there's no cost to them from doing that. Right. In Europe, if you, people who send out, companies that send out packaging, mm. Have to weigh it and measure it, and then they have to recover it. And anything they don't recover, they have to pay for. And as a result of that, when you get a CD in Europe, it comes in cellophane. When you get a credit card, it comes in a tiny little envelope. Uh Because the guy who sent that, the company that sent that to you, has to pay for the disposal, and that goes to his bottom line. Yeah. Um, but if you don't, you know, and you don't get these big packages that are filled with little uh, styrofoam peanuts, right, mm-hmm. that are with, a, with some tiny little item in it. It drives
0: me crazy when I get a box that is just, right. it, it, it's, it's nothing, you know, it's, it's a little timer like this, and it's, it's, a, it's a five-gallon box filled with styrofoam. I thought it was in
2: laziness.
3: I didn't realize it was intentional for advertising. No, well, That's incentiv- why
2: wow. but it's incentivizing good behavior if the government is saying to you, there is no cause to you for you putting garbage and packaging into the stream of commerce. Yeah. If you're in Europe and you're a manufacturer and you put packaging into the stream of commerce, you have to recover it. You have to show yeah. that it's recycled or recovered, or you pay for it. And because of that you were incentivized to not create packaging. So, mm-hmm. and to me, the way that you change—and this goes back to what I said originally about Procter and Gamble—the way that you change behave, change behavior uh-huh. is not through appealing to people's morality. Yeah. So, so it's
0: not back to what Izzy is saying. You shouldn't do this because no,
2: that, that, like, that's not really helpful. It doesn't help, and it can only only eight percent of people, and usually only three percent will will respond to those appeals so at least 92 percent of people are checking out are not, they're not going to yeah. listen to you so what you do is you incentivize good behavior yes. by integrating by rationalizing the marketplace by saying you can make money by doing good things rather than you you know we're going to allow you to make money by doing bad things by flooding the nation with garbage so for example if You know, if we had a carbon tax, Mm -hmm. people then would figure out, we would innovate new ways, and and they did this in the state of California, Mm -hmm. which is why California uses less energy, about um, 8,000 kilowatts, whereas the national use about 12,000 kilowatts Mm -hmm. per person per household. Mm -hmm. Okay, And the reason for that, is that California changed the laws to incentivize good behavior and to punish bad behavior? A true free market should, that's what it should do. It should incentivize good behavior by saying, you can use carbon if you want, but if you do, you're going to pay for it because mm. it's hurting other people. And we're also not going to subsidize it. We're not, right, we're <laughs> yeah. not going to subsidize it. We're not going to allow you to externalize your costs through pollution. Mm. If you pollute, you're welcome to pollute. If you do it, you're going to pay a price for it. And there's certain pollution we're not going to allow, which is toxics. Right. Um, but if you do other pollution, if you put carbon into the stream of car- into the public area, into the public commons, mm-hmm. if you put ozone and particulates or these other pollutants, we're going to charge you, and that is going to incentivize you to switch to more efficient forms of creating energy and creating products. And that's really what we want to do. It's not to tell everybody, don't buy a new car. Right. Uh, Tell the manufacturers, you cannot build a car unless it, it, you know, we're gonna charge you, we're gonna incentivize you to build cars that have the lowest energy consumption that is possible. And the more that you do that, the more money you're gonna make so you can it's a marketplace that allows people to make money by doing good things, rather than telling you that you can make money by doing bad things to your neighbor.
0: Mm. Ultimately, it's the, it's the carrot and the stick, and what you're yeah. saying is the carrot is so much more effective, at least for the vast majority, of the population, no,
2: nobody likes a busybody, and nobody likes a
0: nag. Right, and nobody wants to
2: be told, "Don't you know you can't behave this way because you're hurting the planet."
0: And I don't do that to people. Hmm. And, and in fact, it makes me want to do the opposite quite often. If yeah. someone tells me you shouldn't do that, yeah, I almost want to do it out of spite. Right. You know, it's like, well, what do you mean? I'm going to go out and just turn my car on for a while just to you know, piss this person off. Of course, I'm not actually going to do that. But yeah. there's something in the, the in humanity that makes us say, whoa, 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 don't tell me what to do. Right. Leave me alone. But if you incentivize me to do something, I'm much more likely to do it.
3: Yeah. Maybe we uh, do a re- reverse psychology marketing plan of, uh, you should litter. (laughs) Look, it used to be in the
2: state of California, if you wanted to build a power plant, you would go to the Public Service Commission, utility would, and say, look, there's a demand for this energy, and I'm going to build a power plant. Here's how much it's going to cost. I'm going to build a coal-burning power plant. Mm. Here's how much it's going to cost, and here's how much the rates are going to rise because of that. And we're going to we're going to build that plant for a hundred million dollars, let's say. Yeah. And we want our board, our shareholders, to make 12 percent interest on that. And if the PSA said that was okay, if you were able to convince them, then you would build that power plant. You would have a hundred million into it. And the cause of that plan is now integrated into the rate base, and your shareholders are making 12% a year on that investment. Mm-hmm. And what we did in the late 70s and early 80s, we changed the California rule to say that um, we are going to incentivize you to build power plants that don't use carbon. Mm-hmm or to make expenditures that don't use carbon. Oh, so for $100 million, you can go, the, the power company can go into 20 million homes and change out the old light bulbs mm. and put in new one. They can go and buy your old refrigerator and put in one that used 2% of the energy. Mm, wow. And for that $100 it they can create five times as much energy Mm. as if they built a new power plant. Wow. Mm. And they can make the 12%. Mm. You're incentivizing them to do something that is much better for society Mm -hmm. other than just, you're giving people the power to do well by doing good. Yes. Right. Rather than telling them there's one way to do this and it's by burning more coal. Mm. And that's, you know, right now, if we actually told people you're going to pay the true poor cost of that coal, which is you build a coal plant, you're acidifying virtually every lake in the Adirondacks and in the Appalachian chain from Georgia to northern Quebec. You are – the coal plants in this country now cause about $375 million a year in lung damage in health care costs. Mm. In the states that have coal, um, like Kentucky and West Virginia, the federal government pays for extra pavement. They have to put 12 inches of pavement to support the coal trucks Mm. on the highways. Oh, wow we pay those costs sure wow you have every freshwater fish in america now has mercury in its flesh there's a health care cause for that as well yeah if you told those coal plants you have to internalize those costs coal instead of costing five cents a kilowatt hour would cost 50 cents a kilowatt hour and nobody would be buying coal power It just wouldn't make sense financially. It wouldn't make sense if you force them to internalize the cost. So it's really a market failure. The market is not telling them Mm -hmm. you have to pay the true cost of bringing that product to market, which includes the cost of cleaning up after yourself, which was a lesson we were all supposed to have learned in kindergarten. Right. Uh, We are incentivizing them to behave badly. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, you know, there's a was the the president or the CEO of Duke Energy. Uh Uh-huh which is one of the biggest coal fleets in the world, mm. in the country. I think it's the, the largest coal-burning power plant, a coal-burning fleet in the country of power plants, of generating facilities. He had kids. He was in North Carolina. He saw what it was doing to the waters. He saw how bad it was for the country. And he went to Congress and said you need to change the rules to force us to internalize the cost because then I can close all my coal plants and Mm. I can switch to something much better. And Congress, (laughs) the coal industry, blocked him. Oh, my God. Wow. Because he said I am killing, I'm destroying the planet and destroying the life that my kids are having by operating these plants. But I can't close them on my own. Because my shareholders were to sue me. his responsibility as a CEO is to maximize shareholder value. Right. Yeah, he has a fiduciary and, responsibility. Right, and that's what, he, that's what these companies, well, you know, they, it's not their fault that they're immoral. It's right. that we have created rules that incentivize them to, ha- to act that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every, for example, if you see, you know, after Katrina, after Hurricane Katrina, you saw Walmart bringing bottles of water down to the Katrina victims, and they're not, but they're not doing that to be good guys. Right. They're doing it because the the um the optics of them doing that make Walmart look good and make more people shop there, which increases shareholder value. Mm-hmm. Right. If they were actually doing it just to be good guys, any of their shareholders could sue them for wasting corporate assets. Mm -hmm. Corporations are not allowed to act altruistically. They're not allowed to act philanthropically. There's a few exceptions to that,
0: right? Like B corporations. and
2: Well- if if you re- if you organize the company differently, but how many companies are B corporations? Yeah, I don't 1200? think there's any on the on the Fortune 500. No,
0: no, I don't think so.
2: And so, yeah, you can do it that way, but that's not how most of them are organized. Mm. Most of them are organized according to you know that virtually everything on the Dow Jones is organized so that. Shareholders know that the corporation is acting in basically in their short-term economic interests. Right, mm-hmm. and what we're doing is we're incentivizing CEOs. So people like, um, like the CEO of Duke, he has to wake up every morning and say, you know, am I going to make decisions today that are good for humanity? or am I going to make decisions that are good for my shareholders? Because those two things are
0: not the same. Right, and and for him, they they are mutually exclusive.
2: Yeah, Yeah. and what you want to do is you want to create a market. You can design markets any way you want. Uh You want to design markets to rationalize them so that people are able to make money by doing good things for humanity rather than forcing them like you're forcing him. Uh Uh-huh make money by destroying people and the planet well i want to talk to you about some of the
0: true costs of things because it's fascinating when you pick up an object from a shelf and you see the price tag on the thing that's the price of the thing but the true cost goes well beyond the price tag is of course the environmental cost of producing the thing or trashing the thing but also ryan and i often talk about from a minimalist perspective it's you know the, the the storage space for the thing. And, and so we need to have larger homes than ever before to keep all of our things. And when our homes are overflowing, put in our garages and basements, and then the storage locker industry, you know, there's sto- more storage facilities than there are corporate Starbucks. Mm-hmm. And, and so there are all these places where we're holding on to all these things. And the true cost is unbelievable. But when we think about the environment, we often, pretend as though the environment and humans are sort of standing in separate corners of the room. There's like an external environment. We don't think about what it does to our internal environment. So we have a question here from our friend, Chris Kelly, a former podcast guest who, uh, who has a question about, about this.
3: Yeah. Uh, he wrote in, can you get RFK to talk about our leap first look later approach to environmental chemicals? The quintessential example is BPA. Now we have BPS, BPF, BPB, BPAF, they all have similar properties, but hey, they're BPA-free. That's a marketing
0: ploy, right? You see all this all the time. BPA-free, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they just change one molecule on it, right. and then they say you the same thing. Right. Yeah. It's equally harmful. That's the same with BFOAs. And you know, the problem is, at You know, this is what Rachel Carson pointed out in 1961 when she wrote Silent Spring and she told Americans for the first time, these chemicals are imposing hidden costs on you because nobody understood that. Mm. And, uh, you know, the chemists were heroes. Mm. A, were the people from DuPont and Dow and these other companies who had won World Mm. War II. They had created, you know, DDT and killed the mosquitoes. And now... We had won the war against the Nazis, and now we were going to win the war against the bugs. And mm-hmm. what she said is, wait a second, you're going to kill the bugs, but you're going to kill all the birds, too. And you're going to kill your out pets, and you're going to give cancer to your children. Yes. And, you know, these are all the hidden costs of these
0: chemicals. Do we, we know this early on? I suspect it, it, there wasn't a whole lot of
2: knowledge. And even today, nobody your knew, average person. Nobody knew when she wrote that book. She was a very interesting woman. I met her at my house in 1962, my uncle, you know, Monsanto, was trying to destroy her. She never spoke out to defend herself because she was dying of cancer at the time. But my uncle, I'm very proud of, uh, President Kennedy went to her aid. And his own um, Department of Agriculture was leading. I mean, the people who were arrayed against her were incredible. The American Medical Association was like trying to kill her. Because they, they were saying you know they're always on the side of big chemicals and big companies, and they were saying DDT is important because it kills mosquitoes and malaria is a big health threat. Yeah. Um. You had Sports oh. Illustrated doing an editorial against their Time magazine, Life magazine. You had which are all kind of you know at that point all tied in with the war machine and the CIA, and you had um, the American Garden Club coming out against her. So she was being attacked from every direction. She was this Mm -hmm. this extraordinary woman. She was a marine biologist, brilliant marine biologist. She'd written two other bestsellers before. She didn't see the ocean until she was 22 years old. She was born in kind of the backwoods of Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And and, she was a very fluid, eloquent writer. And she was able to translate science into something that the lay person could read. She wrote this book in 1961, Silent Spring, that became the biggest bestseller in history. And she was attacked. Monsanto put millions and millions into creating public relations agencies and, and trying to destroy earn her reputation. My uncle, breaking with his own Department of Agriculture, created... Led by Jerome Wisner, who was a science advisor, who created this um, this independent group of scientists to read through her book and to check it for factual accuracy. Yeah. and you know she was being told, you know, like people are today, that it's full of misinformation, mm-hmm. chemical misinformation, and that you're um, you lying to the public and you're endangering the public, et cetera. And um. And he, that committee vindicated her on every principal point that she made in that book, and she died a couple of years later in 1976. We passed a law called TOSCA, there's a Toxic Substance Control Act. Um, but by then, the by the time we passed it, the um, the chemical industry had in control of Congress. Hmm. And they put provisions in that statute that would make it almost impossible to enforce. And that's what happened. So since then, 85,000 new chemicals have come on the market, many of them associated with these consumer products Mm -hmm. you guys are so deeply concerned about. Um, In that time, only 200 of those chemicals have ever been tested. So mm. we have
0: 100,000 chemicals, basically, well, that are untested. Yeah, closed. Uh,
2: yeah. Well, uh, and, and only five of them have been banned. Mm. Oh, my God. And the way that it works is that EPA has no budget to test the chemicals. Mm. So, and the chemicals, the way the act works is a chemical is innocent until it's proven guilty. Uh-huh. And so, and the company is in charge of conducting the tests. <laughs> and what the company wow. does is the company... You know, hires these funny scientists, what do you call them by ostitudes.
1: <laughs> create these, you know, these phony um, studies that show that it's
2: safe. The endpoint is already there before they do this study. And yeah, it's yeah. find
0: us a way to get to this endpoint, basically. Exactly. Oh, right. yeah, and so, and so, I, I, I'm someone who has really bad chemical sensitivities, and so, like, I can't go into a room that's been freshly painted, for example. And, and I'm sure a lot of that has to do with some different pharmaceutical interventions. And I'm sure we can even talk about the pharmaceutical industry. At, at some point today or, or during the maximal, but the all of these chemicals what 's really fascinating about this is is I think the average person, even today, like they hear bpa mm-hmm. they 're like i don't i, I don 't even know what that is and now i 'm hearing about like all the chemicals in drinking water consumer reports just did this study where you know my favorite drinking water, Topo Chico, had like ten times the quote acceptable level of PUFAs or whatever, whatever the acronym is yeah. uh, for, for chemicals. And so we, we have all of these chemicals entering our bodies every day, whether we're breathing it or we're ingesting it, and we don't even know what's going into us. And it's no wonder that we're, we're so sick.
2: Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, our children are now kind of walking around in, a, in a, just this witch's brew of toxic chemicals and we've never there's never been a generation raised with these kind of assaults on our ecosystem and they're cumulative. We know that. Your your you know, the human biome and the human immune system is designed to take a lot of stress, but right. if it's being stressed every day and your mitochondrial and all of these different cell structures are under constant assault. Mm. From EMFs, from you know fluoride in the water, from um, from the pesticides in your food and chemical residues everywhere, and what you're breathing. And mold. And there's no rest from it. Yeah. yeah. And you know, so here's what we've had an explosion of um, of chronic disease. Yes. That has made our children, this generation of children. The sickest generation in history. It's unbelievable. And there's three categories essentially of chronic disease that we see now are epidemic. One is neurodevelopmental disease. So ADD, ADHD, speech delay, language delay, ticks, Tourette syndrome, narcolepsy. Um, ASD, autism is typical. Autism has gone from one in 10,000 in my generation to one in every 34 in my children's generation. Yeah, you don't
0: see any people who are appreciably older, like Ryan and I are 40 this year, who
2: who are above 40. No, you don't see. You do not see. I have never in my life seeing somebody with full-blown autism my age, and I was raised on the spear tip of the movement for intellectual disabilities. My family started Special Olympics. I worked for 200 hours when I was a kid in Waseca, home for the retarded. We never saw people like this. We never saw, and by full-blown autism, what I mean is nonverbal, non-toilet trained, screaming, stimming, toe walking, um, agonizing gut aches. Mm -hmm. You don't see men my age walking around with football helmets and diapers at the local mall. I have never seen anybody like that. And yet, at my kid's age, you know, it's one in every 34 kids. Well, that's one category neurodevelopmental, allergic disease. And most of these appeared in 1989. In fact, Congress said, the EPA, tell us what year the epidemic in autism began. And they came back and said, 1989, it's a red line. Oh, wow. so, um, and also that year, food allergies, mm-hmm. peanut allergy. I never knew it. I have like 70 first cousins, eleven brothers and
3: sisters. I never knew anybody with a peanut allergy, right. and yet a lot of Kennedys out there. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of them. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Um, like the peanut al- allergy. Yeah, I remember that blowing up, and it's like, yeah. I, well, where did it come up, from? I, yeah, and
2: why aren't why isn't Tony Fauci asking that question? He's the head of allergic and uh, you know autoimmune yeah, diseases. Yeah. He's not asking we know where it's coming from it's coming from these chemical exposures mm. and we know specifically which ones but mm. you also had anaphylaxis, you had eczema up here that year you had all um, these other immune issues asthma you know which was around but it exploded right and then you um, and so we have all those diseases. And then the autoimmune disease, which is the biggest category, which is rheumatoid arthritis, juvenile diabetes. You, it's hard to find anybody prior to 1989 that had those diseases. And afterward, they're everywhere. Yeah, colitis, disease, all these grave oh, yeah. Oh, here's the, what HHS says, in 1940, 6% of Americans had chronic diseases. So the entire universe of all those diseases that I just mentioned, uh-huh. only 6% of Americans So had, they existed. They existed. It was 1940. There was already chemicals. There was mm-hmm. already vaccines. You know, one vaccine, really, and there were just chemicals, but they existed. Mm-hmm. That's probably close to a background level mm-hmm. of what society ought to look like. Yeah. Okay, by 1986... It had risen to twelve point eight. Oh, more than double. Yeah, more than double. And then, by two thousand six. It was fifty four percent. Can you imagine? So, oh, it's half our kids are disabled. Yes. And nobody's saying anything about it. Tony Fauci is not. You know this. This dwarfs
3: coronavirus. So let me let me just repeat that. As You're saying fifty four percent. By 2006, HH has its own data. So more than one out of two kids born will have yeah, one it of these has diseases. has a chronic disease, lifetime, hmm. lifetime chronic disease. It's, hmm.
0: it's unfathomable. we got so much more to talk about. But first, let's check out some voicemail comments and tips from our listeners.
3: Hey, this is Jane in Los Angeles.
2: I used to have a lot of trouble making decisions. Um, and now whenever I go out to eat and I'm looking at a menu, I get five seconds to pick. Um, and making quick, fast decisions has helped me get better and more comfortable with making decisions in other parts of my life. Hi guys, I'm Brittany, originally from Montana and now living in New York. I wanted to call because you guys speak a lot about intention. While I believe that intention is important when buying, I also think we should use intention when we're decluttering. For example, I'm a huge movie fan and recently got rid of over 60 DVDs. Instead of dropping them off at the thrift store to be sold, I donated them all to my local library. Like so, my boyfriend was finally ready to give up his Xbox, so we found a local shelter that frequently has children, and we donated the games and consoles to them. While it does create a few extra trips, your things re- can really create value for someone else if you let them.
0: All right, y'all. Thanks again to Robert F. Kennedy Jr. for joining us today. We have a bunch more questions for him on this week's episode of the Minimalist Private Podcast. You can also listen to his podcast wherever you check out podcasts or over at anchor.fm/. R-F-K-J-R. Real quick for right here, right now. Here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalists. We have both Sean's here today. The Sean's are over in the corner, right? Yeah. Uh, We've been all week this week. We're actually recording this on a Thursday. We've been revamping my How to Write Better class. uh, Teaching. man. You know what I learned, Ryan? So I went, Mm. went back and watching these videos of a babyface JFM. A 32-year-old me. <laughs> or, many of the videos I recorded was right around 32. In, in wow. fact, some of them were I was 31. And what I realized is I was a really good writing teacher back then. Mm. And it, it in, in fact, it intimidated me at first because I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I'm going back and re-watching these how am I going to top this? Yeah, I felt like you know, Jordan watching game tape from the 90s or something. And then I realized, oh, no, I can still do this. And in fact, what we've done is we've made the class much better. Now, you can't sign up for it. It's not open yet. So sorry. Sorry. You're out of luck. <laughs> but what you can do. What you can do is download a free ebook called 11 Ways to Write Better. And mm-hmm. you can find that over at howtowritebetter.org. If you do download that, I'll have your email address, so if you're interested in the class, we'll notify you whenever it opens back up. We do it a few times a year, three or four times a year, and it's usually open for, for about 24 mm. to 48 hours, first 100 people who sign up for it. But, again, you can't sign up for it right now. You will be able to in the future. In the meantime, 11 ways to write better. You can give us your email address, and we'll let you know when it opens back up.
3: Now, there are actually 12 ways to write better but when you open that class back up, that's, they can pay to find out that 12th way to write better. <laughs> the secret to writing better. <laughs> You'll never guess. There
0: are actually no secrets. You know, in the class, what we yeah. do is we, we break it down. The first week is like a habits, like developing the writing habit. The next two weeks, we talk about composition versus editing, mm-hmm. Editing, because most people confuse composition with writing. When you mm-hmm. think of writing, it's just like, oh, put the words on the page. That's about one third of writing. Sure. But we also really go through the techniques of editing. And then mm-hmm. finally, we talk about getting your words in front of other people, how, yeah. how you and I have successfully built an audience and added value to that audience through the written word. We talk about all the different ways you can do that. writebetter.org for more details. For our added value this week, Ryan, you know David Gray came out with a new album. No, he didn't. It's called Skellig. How, too soon. Isn't Is he still alive? <laughs> <laughs> I think you're thinking of Bob Dylan. <laughs> Oh, who's also still alive. <laughs> Let's play you out today with Heart and Soul. This is from David Gray's new album, and it's a beautiful song. The whole album is beautiful. Bex and I went driving out. Uh, we went out to Malibu Creek State Park not that long ago, and we were, we were just listening to the album on repeat. It, it's a gorgeous album. And he, there's, something, there's certain writers who are able to capture something mm. where you're like, I don't know exactly what he's saying, but this is all truth. You feel the essence of it, even if you don't completely comprehend all of the words. Yeah. And David Gray is one of those singer-songwriters. This is heart and soul from his new album. By the way, we have a bunch more surprise questions this week. Like, Ryan, is there such thing as he- healthy competition? Mm. Also, when does it make sense to not trust the science? We're also going to talk to RFK about being banned and censored. We're going to talk about thought crimes. We're going to talk about apologizing and a whole bunch of other controversies. We're going to go deep on this one. Plus, we're going to answer a million more questions, controversial questions. And if you want to hear all that, join us on the Minimalist private podcast this week. Visit theminimalists.com support to subscribe and get your personal link so that our private podcast plays in your favorite podcast app It is cheaper than a cup of coffee, and it's really where we get intimate, where we go deep. Hmm, trying to think of other synonyms
3: for going <laughs> deep, Ryan. Real mature. Penetrating. <laughs> this is really where we No, nah, it's too far. <laughs> <laughs> this is where we penetrate. This is really where we get naked and make love. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, what? Idea love. Oh, idea oh my bad. Yeah.
0: <laughs> idea sex right. as I've heard someone call it. Yeah, so no what, what oh, we do God. we do talk about some things we don't talk about in public. We do that on the private podcast, the dot com slash support. You can follow the minimalists on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Minimalists. Come to one of our live podcast shows. Visit theminimalists.com for event information. While you're there, you can also sign up for our email list to get our podcast show notes and minimalist writings sent straight to your inbox. If you have a question, comment, or minimalism tip, email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. And if you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works thanks for listening y'all we'll see you next time